Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Channeling the dark energies. The dark podcaster force that sustains us. We're the, we're the Sith Lords of podcasting. <laughs> we we just walk very, very slowly towards all potential listeners. <laughs> and, it, and if we reach you, you become a Patreon subscriber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. And the, the, the only way the only way to get to get free is to make someone else a Patreon subscriber. Yeah, that's the that's the only way to survive this is to it's sort of like a multi-level marketing scheme is just to sign somebody else up in your place. Yep, pretty pretty, pretty much, pretty much. You got to you got to keep moving along. Uh so so everyone, I am Darth Podcastius and welcome to the Avon of horror movie criticism. I am joined as always by at the Emperor Crit guy. How's it going? Uh great. Really happy to be here to talk about elevated horror for once, you know? That's what we're going to do today. <laughs> And then no, no, this is not this is not an episode on Star Wars, so we are we are free from that for a moment longer. But we are talking about and again, it's another film we've had a lot of requests for. It's really cool that we can get to go through these requests. Um and if you would like to if you would like to request, please do join the Patreon, do sign up, do support the show, and uh let us know what you would like to see us cover. Today we are talking about 2014's It Follows. Um Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, as we, as we may have mentioned, maybe one of the forerunners or one of the very first films that get, get, got this, drew this, drew this label of being elevated horror. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about why that is, uh, complete nonsense, obviously. Uh, but, but first, <laughs> as always, and I am very excited. I'm very excited to, to hear what Ash thinks. We all need to know about what it follows is about. Yeah, no, no banter today. No fun. We're getting, we're getting right to work. If you're new to the show, then here's where I usually offer a poetic exploration of cinema, philosophy, and my personal encounter with a film. However, today I'm just going to overturn my mind like a plastic jack-o'-lantern full of rotten Halloween candy. The monster in It Follows, known as The Entity has been ascribed many traits. It is the specter of economic anxiety, the flight of industry in Detroit, and, of course, a tired metaphor for sexually transmitted infections. However, we can jettison ourselves from this well-worn cinematic territory and encounter the monster in an entirely new light. The entity is the looming specter of, and here I'm gesturing with some of the most haunting scare quotes I can conjure, 80s horror. The specter of 80s horror has become a boogeyman for both the movie-going public and critics of horror cinema alike. Any film with a scare, a synth score, and at least a reference to any piece of pop culture even loosely tied to the American 1980s now has its feet encased in concrete before being thrown into the vast sea of 80s horror. As time goes by, what characterizes the format of 80s horror has less to do with horror cinema from the American 1980s. It has become a slow-moving amalgam of retail advertising. This entity can take on any shape, from Kellogg's Eggo Waffles to Hasbro's Dungeons & Dragons, which is incidentally partly owned by BlackRock. The entity is spread through our engagement. Stranger Things filmed part of its last season in a Nazi death camp, 
But for the price of admission, you can be tempted to buy an officially licensed Stranger Things Energizer Battery branded retro flashlight, the official Stranger Things Echoes card game, or the Stranger Things Hasbro's Magic the Gathering card set. Pop detritus is the mark of the entity. It's not enjoyment, it's advertising. It's not fandom, it's consumerdom. It follows, like so many other films, finds itself gasping for air at the bottom of the 80s horror trench. What drew this film into the 80s vortex? Was it Disaster Space's synth score? The intentional choice to blend anachronisms? The focus on a youthful cast dealing with sex? 80s horror is not merely a set of symbols and icons that can be plastered onto any cinematic vehicle. It's an emergent property grown out of a specific ecology of social machines. It is a property of material conditions that can no longer be invoked. The entity is a holdover, a recuperation of something that could threaten the status quo, a reminder that the well of nostalgia has been poisoned by capitalistic power dynamics. It follows until we can create a social condition under which its following is rendered as harmless as a refreshing ecto-cooler on a summer's day. Join us as we walk at a brisk pace and discuss It Follows. Ooh. Would you um would you like to know something? Uh yes, yes, yes. So, I, so really, really quickly I, before before that. Prior to hitting the go button on recording, John John made John wrote, wrote down a secret guess on an envelope to to see if he knew what the price he was going to be about and we're about to unfold that envelope live on air. Take it away. Uh, uh it's it is uh 1980s horror and pastiche. What are the odds? Uh, like I, like I, I don't know, I don't know, uh, I don't know what this means, but I, I knew, I knew watching this film what your praise would be on. Uh, I've never been so happy to be proven right. <laughs> um, I feel like I've, I feel like I've leveled up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like being Cassandra, but for something like totally harmless and benign. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just saw it. I, I, I manifested it into being. Um, and I think there's so much to talk about in how this film is kind of pasted into a historical continuity of the eighties imaginary. We might call it. Mm-hmm. And let's, I mean, like, let's jump right into that. Then let's talk about the kind of vibes-based approach to cinema that this movie takes. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, hmm. like, what, what, what is it that makes, uh, what is it that makes this an 80s, uh, like, that makes it indebted to, like, that, that image? What are the vibes here? So what, what I find to be really interesting about this film is intentionally on, on, on a lot of, like, a lot of the prop work, a lot of the set design, the costuming, right, the way the characters have, have, like, their hair styled, like, everything about this movie is intentionally anachronistic. Right, some characters have smartphones. Other other characters are using like wall-mounted dial-up phones. You know, like some cars are brand new, some cars are from the seventies. Like the, some fashion sensibilities are relatively modern. Other fashion sensibilities are definitely nineteen eighties. The, the, this movie is intentionally designed this way to evoke the quality of a dream. Right, the space of a dream is sometimes very fluidic in terms of when and where it's set. It likes to move and it likes to phase through things. It doesn't like to have certainty. And I think that this movie does that very successfully, but I also think that that is another form. That's just not the form of a dream. That's also the form of nostalgia, 
right? Nostalgia often boils things down to a set of icons, a set of symbols that can be easily reminded of the past, right? Just like what makes Stranger Things 1980s is just a list of things that you can buy. Yeah, and... And I understand. I actually think anachronism is a kind of strong choice because it stops, it stops the film feeling immediately dated. Yeah, and and it allows for weirdly. I, I don't know. I don't know if this film, I, I, it fits very uncomfortably into that box because its nostalgia is not uniform enough. No, no. Right, and so it, it it kind of underscores the very artificiality of something like Stranger Things, right? Where it isn't set in the eighties; it's set in our present day imagination of thirty years ago. Yes, right? it's 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 a, nostalgia is about the construction of a particular kind of history, and this is a film which is deliberately trying to, in its production design, is deliberately trying to be kind of like trans historical. And for the record, I wouldn't argue that this is a 1980s, like in scare quotes here, 1980s horror movie. But you can find plenty of articles online that try to argue that It Follows is some kind of masterwork of 80s horror. And, and I mean, like, yeah, as, yeah, yeah, which is so weird. Yeah, and That's I, and such I think a weird thing to say. It's, I think it's part, part of the form now. It's part of the formula as being part of the movie going public or a critic of horror cinema. Right. That 80s horror is no longer in reference to horror movies from the 80s it's now kind of a stylistic form and it's a stylistic form that has broad appeal so for something to to get the laurel of 80s horror it's it's a mark in its favor you know if you call something 80s horror that's not open parentheses derogatory close parentheses like that's meant to be a compliment yeah exactly and i think um i think it shows that the really it's this kind of like sanding down of the film so it fits into a kind of neat mm-hmm. aesthetic uh historical category is like i don't know about you but like reading what lots of people have written about this film online i'm like people do not pay attention to what this film is about or what it's what it's trying to do and it is so strange that people are faced with something that is deliberately anachronistic deliberately based upon uh, a dream is actually specifically explicitly yep. based upon a nightmare the director had and they're like oh man this is just like this is just like the 80s this is just like horror that was made in the 1980s and it's like what that shows is the is the way in which cultural histories are are ideologically constructed because when people say 1980s horror they mean a specific kind of horror that was made by specific filmmakers in very specific circumstances yes and they exclude exclude huge swathes of you know um experimental or transgressive film that was made in the 80s that doesn't kind of fit in that in that niche right it's it's kind of historical collapse making making 1980s this neat aesthetic category yeah yeah absolutely right and it's the problem with like because I'm so convinced that the reason this movie gets dragged in, into the 1980s C is because of Disaster Space's score, which is this movie has an amazing score. Yeah, great synth work. It's, it's just beautiful synth work. It's just like, phenomenal. I can't, I have nothing, I, I almost have nothing to say about it. It's so good. Clearly, clearly, clearly referencing back to like Halloween's famous synth score, but like, doesn't, never feels like a pastiche. You know, no, it never feels no. it never feels like it's it's kind of like 
uh, deliberately trying to, to, to rip off like uh, Halloween. And, it, and I think it feels like a very deliberate kind of reference point, but uh, I don't know. I, if, I, I feel like that's such a weak argument that people make that go since therefore 1980s. I, I totally agree. And I think that there's two important points to kind of flesh out of that. And the first is that like Halloween isn't an eighties movie. You know, shrug, <laughs> the, the, the kind of we're dealing with a much more fluidic and a much sloppier kind of temporal landscape here. And yeah, I, I think on top of that, that doesn't give us space to recognize the fact that like all artists are influenced by the artists that come before them, you know, and, and to to create horror synth scores a la Carpenter right in 2022 or 2014 in the case of this movie. You know, it's it's not you're not always necessarily trying to create something that's like hashtag 80s horror. You know, that that would that would be like saying anyone that writes a rock song is like a like doo-wop revivalist or something, you know, like yeah, that's, it's exactly. too reduction, too reductionist. Exactly. Um, but like the influences here are here very clear, like um, in terms of the suburban setting uh, and how the setting is framed lots of references back to to carpenter's pioneering mm. work in terms of like the thematic content of the plot uh, and it's kind of nightmare quality very clearly indebted to um nightmare on elm street uh, but again it never feels like a kind of pastiche i feel like it's taking certain kind of like stylistic flourishes but i i i honestly think this is a really People people tend to either write this off or kind of rave about it, and I think neither is completely accurate. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it, I just think it's a very it's a very good and like kind of solidly made film that's doing some interesting things. I I couldn't agree more. This is one of like the, the hardest movies for me to talk about as as a, a film critic, I suppose. Are are movies that are just pretty damn good, and this movie's just it's really tight. It's pretty damn good. You know, great. Yeah. It, <laughs> Uh, wanders a little bit, I think, in the at the end of the second act and into the third, but like has a decent ending and like you know it it just works. It just works. It's it, it looks it looks really good. I the cinematographer uh, who also went on to work on Jordan Peele's Us loves a good three sixty camera move, mm-hmm. uh, and it makes the space seem very fluid. So it's not a very it's not a very spatially rigid film, which again adds this atmosphere of like it could it could come from anywhere. Yes, um, I think there's there's just a lot to like here. But I think what we this is always what happens, right? When we come across a film that's like it's just good, what we end up doing is trying to correct how everyone else has been talking about the film. <laughs> yeah, and I think like I don't know as far as like formal formal complaints that that, that I have about this film, like. I just inside this movie, there is an amazing slow cinema with lots of long meandering takes and and really dwelling on kind of what's what's going on here. I think for me, some of the weakest parts of this movie are when like the horror movie TM boxes need to be checked and we have to like it's okay. we're doing a horror movie. So so, okay, like insert jump scare here match with orchestral swell okay moving on we have another horror movie convention we need to hit like so you're saying that you want this to basically have the pacing of a tarkovsky film yes (laughs) (laughs) i I want this to be three hours long and have multiple unbroken 40 minute cuts 
Yeah, the stalker cut where it's nearly four hours long and you follow the creature in real, the entity in real time. I, I want it follows colon logistics. Yes. I, I knew this would come up. I knew this would come this, up. This movie isn't nearly long enough. I, the thing is, the thing it travels at a brisk walking pace and the movie's too quick for that, which I think is like, because that works, because the, the monster in this movie is essentially the same thing as Michael Myers. You know, it it's it, it, except it, and now it can like ma- you know like change its change its appearance to match other people. Um, but it, you know, it walks slow, but it has infinite stamina, and if it catches you, you die. And like, it's very similar to Michael Myers. But I think what makes Myers work in Halloween is that he's a boogeyman. You know, he's he's just kind of he's he's always where he needs to be to spook you because that's just what a boogeyman would do. And I think that if we really wanted to kind of dwell on the space of constantly being stalked you know like this movie does a lot of things that i really like about that the 360 camera shots that you mentioned the fact that like in a lot of the wide like there's so many wide shots in this movie which is very isolating and unnerving and in a lot of those there's always kind of like people walking towards the lens walking towards our pov which gives us that kind of sensation of being stalked yeah um but yeah you know like if it was like five hours longer and a lot more meandering it would have been better <laughs> <laughs> release the snyder cut <laughs> uh do you want to talk about any of the other kind of formal elements before we move on to the kind of discourse and meta discourse about this film yeah yeah before before we before we do the i, I forgot forgot to enter and uh, formally enter us into the formalist zone so so now we're now we're in the extended i guess we're in the extended pricey zone right now yeah <laughs> um, but no, like, I think, I think one thing that we do need to talk about is like how the dream is depicted here and, and how dreamscapes are achieved. And I think that one thing that's really successful in here is that use of anachronisms, right? Is having like, there, there is no clear temporal reference point for this film outside of like America in the 1900s through early 2000s. Yeah, that it, it it's happened at some point. Like yeah. that's the best you can say. It's set. It, you, I think you watch it and you go, "Yeah, this is set recently." But you would think that if you'd watched this at any point over the last thirty years. And and well, what this reminds me of is this reminds me of like one of those original series Star Trek episodes where Kirk and the crew get like sucked and they visit. They get sucked into a time vortex or they visit a planet that's like. So they land and Spock is like, oh my God, this is just like Earth in the 1860s. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, that's, totally. That's the costuming and sets that were that were on the studio lot from another production earlier that week. And it's like, yes. it, it reminds me of that because like, when we depict the 1800s now, we kind of jam 150 years right into one moment. We, you know, like, it, it's not a movie from the 18, 1855, it's a movie from the 1800s. Yes. And this feels yeah, yeah, like yeah. this is a movie from the 1900s. Or, or maybe like, you know, like the long 1900s or something. Like, this is a movie from very recently. But oh, it is... I think, I think that's completely right. Yeah. I think that's completely right. The... Um, the it, I, I, what, I, what I like about that is that it means it doesn't date. Yeah. It, it like... I watched this and it's, you know, it's a decade old pretty much, but it, mm. like it, it feels remarkably contemporary and it is precisely because of that anachronism and because of, um, you know, there's, yeah, Yara has her, her 
um, her clamshell e-reader slash yeah. light source, which I really love. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are also watching like they're also watching like the creature from the Black Lagoon and other like fifties B movies. And, and they're watching like, them on CRT TVs, like yeah, they're watching them on old CRTs, and it's like this is this is what this is this is what like in in a way, in its in its kind of sense of historicity, it is kind of a postmodern movie, right? It, mm-hmm. When when does it happen? Now, when when is it set? A while ago, like yeah, the the, the its historicity is kind of like collapsed into this kind of like mesh of competing signs. If you want a movie that's going to be exactly what, what so in, in the year 2120, when some filmmakers make a movie and they're like, yeah, we're setting this in 2025, it's going to look like this. Like, yes. like, like this, yeah, this yeah. is what those movies will like, assuming that the next three years don't introduce anything that would fundamentally change all of that knock on wood sound effect goes here. <laughs> Um, and yeah, it, all of this in combination with that kind of very liquid camera movement, the fact that there's often very little um, kind of traveling. So you see people in lots of different places and they're occasionally in the car mm-hmm. and they occasionally run out of the location. But a lot of the time they're just there, right? They're just, you know, you, we just cut the cut happens. And in that kind of like in the in the space between frames, that's when all the movement occurs. And that's the logic yeah. of a dream, right? And, and when yeah. you in your dream, you you're just where are you? You're in the school. You're in the office. You're in the abandoned cathedral. You're in the uh, you're in the hideous nightmare of uh, a collapsing reality. Um, like there is no there's no need to move between those states. Yeah, and, and the, the dream logic also really facilitates this movie because I think you could have made a much like lesser version of it follows and like because the lesser version of it follows would have introduced a lot of like. There would have been like the unnecessary reading about lore of the entity yeah, at the local well, library. Yeah, the, the yeah. law. What the what are the rules yeah. that you have to follow? Uh, and they don't bother with any of that. And the film is so much better for it because it it also keeps it kind of quite low key. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah, the police are involved a little bit, but it's not even like they go looking for their help, right? Yeah, they go okay. Well, we'll deal with this because. Well, there's nobody else here in this kind of dream world. Mm-hmm. And I think that adds like, you know, we, we, we can talk about this next as like a formal element that will lead us into kind of the more proper philosophical discourse. And that's like, what is being a teenager on screen? Because I think this movie yes. does some interesting things that makes the characters age in and of itself an anachronism. Yes. Like it, it displaces them where you can read them successfully as young college kids. You can read them as teens, you know, like they kind of fit in this amorphous space, right? That, that, that kind of liminal cusp of adulthood where you're like legally an adult, but you're still materially and maybe, you know, emotionally under your parents' wings. I mean, I think, I think, I, you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about um, Diablo Cody's film Juno from 2007. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because that's a very specific presentation of what a teenager is. Right? Mm-hmm. And in a way that feels, that now feels quite like mannered and like um, very stylized. And there's a sort of, what I really like about this film is there is a kind of like naturalism to it. Mm-hmm. Um. 
and uh it, you know there is that kind of trend of like portraying like what's the teenage the coming of age movie it's the it's the bildungsroman right it's the like you overcome the challenge and you mm. go out into into adulthood and sometimes that's funny but uh, like this film just goes well what if that was terrifying and and i really i really like that because a lot of coming of age cinema it's very clean yeah and yeah. and th- this movie this movie is not you know, like yeah, the things that mind, you have to this, overcome come with you. Yeah, that's to me, to my mind, that's what this film is. Is 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 in the tradition of things like uh, things like uh, Juno, like even even something like uh, Greta Gerwig's uh, Ladybird, which comes out th- just three years after this. Like, but this is like, well, what if becoming you know you you're supposed to like become something, but what if what you become is like a nightmare? I really like that. I really like this tying <clears throat> these individuals becoming into necessarily needing to be followed by the It Follows monster, that being part of that. Yeah, totally. totally. So so I think I think we're we're starting we're starting to move on into we're starting to be followed by discourse at this point. Discourse is is walking at a a brisk, leisurely pace, but I think we need to stay a few steps ahead. Yes, indeed. Um, I think the only way to do that actually is to kind of take on, take head on. Maybe this is one of the earliest films where horror criticism started to just kind of collapse. <laughs> um, and instead of becoming actually about like seriously engaging with the, the body of the work that's in front of you, it became this game of like decoding the metaphor, uh, and kind of solving it. Um, so let's, Let's kind of start by let's deal let's deal with this head on and talk about what this film is not about. And, and um, I, yeah, go on, go on, go, go on, go on. Go oh, on. I, I was going to say like like that. I think that temptation has been as old as contemporary art criticism, more broadly. Like like to to be the one that unlocks the secret of a piece of media that that will that garners you some fame, some success. You know, in a bygone age that would could have would have garnered you academic success. And now it's like it's kind of further facilitated by the way writing about cinema online works. You know, like like it's a, you could do clickbait better if you're claiming something really definite. You know, then yes. then you can do clickbait if you're like, OK, well, here's one thing that this movie points towards. Yes, Absolutely. And so I think the first, well, let's just talk about STIs, sexually transmitted infections. Let's talk about the thing that everyone says this movie's about. So, so the premise is Jay goes on a date, has sex with a guy. She is chloroformed and incapacitated afterwards. And he explains that something has been, something's now going to follow her. Um, and the way to get rid of it is sleep with somebody else. Um, and so the, the obvious and immediate reading is, well, this is a film about the dangers of teenage sex and STIs. Um, all right, why is this wrong, Ash? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that like the metaphor of the STI is present in this movie. You can definitely talk about it in that context, but I think you'll very quickly like run into limitations on your like three hundred to eight hundred word viral pop culture criticism piece. Uh, yes, absolutely. Because um, 
because the because to just focus on that involves ignoring everything else that the film is trying to show you. Yes. Right. Uh, the so it it isn't it isn't about like and to be honest, I think it's 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 very like this is something that you know uh, men, women, and chainsaws t- takes apart, mm-hmm. which is like the misogyny of the eighties, the seventies, eighties, and early nineties slasher was the puritanism of the the punishment for sex. But it's like in a way, just because people have sex in a horror movie doesn't mean that the sex necessarily demands punishment. Um. Like it's it's certainly it's portrayed as quite emotionally complicated, um, but really, there's something to just focus on the kind of like what we might call it on the level of like uh, mechanics, as it were, is to sort of like miss a lot of like the nuance of the film. I think you have to kind of like just chop that that your little metaphor out and kind of mm-hmm. rip it out of the gut, rip it out of the guts of the movie yeah. and then just kind of leave the rest of the movie to bleed to death on the floor um pretty much yeah and even like you know not 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 to I, I always hate relying on quotes from directors because then like who cares what the directors think about their movies but yeah. it, it is instructive <laughs> to occasionally look at their own argumentation for what they wanted to do in their film and the director david robert mitchell even said that you know, like when he originally wrote this movie, he was very young and it was just about the nightmare. And then as he became an adult, he added the sexual elements to give, you know, the plot more mo- more movement. And then like for him, like, you know, he, he made a comment and I'm going to paraphrase here that like ha- having sex is inherently dangerous and it's dangerous on a lot of levels. Right. Like like there's there's the level of the STI. Right. But then there's also like emotional danger. There's danger for your own personal trajectory in life. There's danger for getting connected with someone. Yeah. Um, but but also like there that that danger could lead to positivity. There's positive outcomes there, right? And and so like in this movie, like yeah, I, I think trying trying to like encapsulate everything into the discourse of like, oh, you have sex, you get an STI, you're followed forever by it. That's that's really stigmatizing and that's really it it, it limits yourself to a very narrow slice of this text. And it kind of ignores the the broader sloppy mess that is human sexuality. Yeah, absolutely. And it ignores the point that like, like this is a movie about teenage. It's a coming of age story, right? The whole point is like, what what are the what are the what are the kind of markers of adulthood? Um, and this is something Jay says in uh, during her date, which is like, the markers of adulthood would be driving in a car. Because the car is the symbol of American freedom, right? Mm-hmm. In in contemporary postmodernism, and it's sex, and th- those and the kind of like the horror of this film is not oh you might have sex and you get an STI or like, but rather like is that like those the, the kind of horror is those markers of adulthood confront you with your own mortality and really they're not as positively transformative as you might think. You're still the same person. Uh, which is why, which is why, like, uh, a lot of the things that she sees following her, like the elderly, mm-hmm. right? The, so like the, the, my reading, and I don't think there's only one correct reading, but for me, it, this is a film about, about death. And it's a film about the idea of you being confronted with your own finitude. Um, and it's not a coincidence that it happens through the medium of sex, right? Sex, like religion, uh, uh, and it's, it's like one of those things that takes you out of yourself. It's kind of self-transformative. 
right? Uh, and that can be over the course of a lifetime or it can be over the course of an evening. But like, <laughs> but as just as you said, the director points out that transformation brings up your own instability, your own contingency. The fact that uh, who you are is going to end in some way. To, to me, that's what this film is about. And, that, and to me, that's much more kind of interesting reading than just going, uh, well, you see, it's continuing the whole thing of like punishing people for having sex. Yeah. And, and I think that in a lot of ways, this movie reminds me of the game Bloodborne from software game. <laughs> <laughs> because because one, one, of, one of the kind of like subtle horrors in Bloodborne is that no matter which actions you pick, you're going to transform yourself into something that kind of jettisons you from the dream. You know, yes. like you cannot remain in this dream state. And childhood, the way it's currently structured in society is very dreamlike. You know, like children have a lot of real world horror and terror that they have to go through, but boy, does it get worse. <laughs> yeah. And it, at, some, yeah, yeah. at some point in your childhood, and this happens much earlier for some than it does others, but you are jettisoned from the dream. You know, like it, the, the entity catches you and you're kind of torn from the dreamscape and into the real. I think like the, the, the near total absence of adults in this movie, the fact that the majority of adults that we see are the It Follows monster. Super telling. Su- super, super, super revealing. Super telling, right? You're going to get pulled out of this thing and then you're going to become something else. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the kind of what, what's worse, maybe that you'll be something kind of like radically different or maybe that you won't be different at all. Maybe it'll just be you, but older. And isn't, in a way, isn't that worse? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. So, and and this is why this is why uh, I think the function. This is why the T. S. Eliot quote is so important, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's in class just just after things have happened. Uh, they're talking about um, the uh, proofrock. They're talking about T. S. Eliot's uh, J. Alfred proofrock, um, and it's like it's a very bleak poem in lots of ways. It's a very bleak poem. Uh, but it's also, it's about being confronted with your own inevitable death. <laughs> you know, what's the, the, the quote that the teacher reads is I've seen the moment of my greatness flicker and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And in short, I was afraid. And it's like, there's that horrible feeling of like uh, if you're a teenager and you're kind of aware of that kind of dream of childhood ending and all of the kind of traumas and potential like pain and, and, and uh, transformation of being an adult, whatever that might mean. And you kind of like, like, isn't the horrible thing, like maybe this is the best it's ever going to be. Right. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that like the horrible thing of being like, uh, this this isn't going to last and maybe everything else that comes is going to be worse. <laughs> so there's a great sequence in the movie that I think really explores this and it's when Jay heads to the beach um, yeah. for the second time, right? There's a second time she goes to the beach. The first time uh, it's, it's when all of her friends see the It Follows monster. Well, they can't see it, but they see the consequences of its presence, which is something we can talk about later. But JJ goes to the beach and then off in the distance, she sees three guys in like a fishing boat just kind of hanging out. And then she starts to like, like, you know, undress and walk into the water. And the a lot of a lot of people have read that as meaning that, she oh, she goes and has sex with all the guys on the boat as a way to get rid of the It Follows monster. 
Um, but I think that the movie is intentionally very ambiguous with that because like mere moments later, she's being stalked by the It Follows monster again. So either that like that bought her all of a fourth of a second or she didn't do it. And I think it's more of it's almost like a Rorschach test of a moment. You know, it's like 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 that's the moment that stresses on men, women and chainsaws. That's the moment where it's like, oh, are we going to like moralize her actions and like to try and, you know, put Jay into a particular framework that allows us to to read her sexuality. But it, but it doesn't matter because no matter what she picks, she consigns herself to death. If she chooses not to have sex with them and retain the it follows entity as as kind of her burden, she she knows that she, what she must do is face death eternally. If she chooses to pass it on, she consigns other people to death and and knows that she is still somewhere down the line of dying. It doesn't matter which way which way she picks, which way she goes, and that's the thing that's really horrific about that is it's not what she well, chooses, this- but that that choice never mattered. Yeah, this is the whole thing that, uh, you know, the guy says to her, right, you've got to pass it on. But, like, if you think about this as the kind of, like, a sort of existential trauma, like, it's an existential horror, right? If you, if you read it that way, this idea of, like, being confronted with your own contingency, the only thing you can do with that traumatic knowledge is you can only, you, you have to pass it on. You have to inflict the existential damage on somebody else. Um, um, I, have to, tra- I have to go really quick. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I've yeah, yeah, no but I'll call you back in two seconds, and then we'll like we'll take a split in the audio file here, and we'll pick it back up. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. We're back. Bye. Uh, well, everyone, I just had to abruptly change locations. Uh, a familiar face showed up at my apartment, but it turns out that it was actually a monstrous visage that's been stalking me for my entire adult life. Oh, that well. So I had. Go. I mean, it happens. It happens is the secret sequel to It Follows. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> but we're back. We're back now. We're, we're recording. Um, I'm just really happy that the entity from It Follows doesn't know how to use like a skateboard or a razor scooter or anything like that. Then I'd, I would be in a pickle then. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what? Where should we where should we continue in our in our um slow rigorous walk through this film? Well, one thing one thing that I find to be really interesting is that this position of the entity as being just a metaphor for an STI and sex as kind of being this thing that is punished in horror, it radiates outward. It doesn't let us see the like broader implications of what's going on here in the movie right this is something that we've been talking about and i think there's also like a really brief sequence at the end that that kind of like really troubles that right because i think one of the ways that you can see the entity and it follows as being kind of like this this beacon of structural decay yeah you know like like it will follow us all eventually it's stalking us all slowly and like by and by it's going to reach you no one is safe from this thing's reach yeah you know, and like it's 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 the it's the kind of structural decay that that's systemic throughout our entire culture, right? Like it's it's the creeping resurgence of homophobia and transphobia, right? It's the spike in racist violence after the you know Trump's presidency. It's the the decline of the quality of life in England post Brexit. That's that's the entity, right? It's coming for you. And at the end of the movie, right? Like so, th- there's a character that um, we we need to talk about in the movie called Paul. Ah um, yes, the the nice guy, uh, the uh, the incel pickup line Twitter account bait character. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, who has, I think, like, he is more unsettling than the It Follows monster itself. Like, he is, he's a, he's a weaselly little manipulative guy. But there's a scene at the end where, like, so at the end of the movie, um, Jay, but Paul is constantly trying to pick Jay up through the course of the movie. And then by the end of the movie, Paul, uh, Jay ultimately relents to Paul's advances and is like, okay, we can, you, you can be stalked by the It Follows monster too. And like. We'll do it together or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we get this brief moment where Paul is kind of driving through worn down neighborhoods in Detroit looking for sex workers to pick up. With the implication being that like he is passing the It Follows entity on to someone who ostensibly will probably pass it further along the chain quicker than another person might. But I think that that in the same framework as the STI conversation, like it's better to look at the, it follows monster than as like, like, Oh no, that's, that that's how systemic problems spread. Yeah. You know, that, that's how they're weighted across society. That's how, that's how they always like, like, like rainwater, you know, dr drifting downward, how they seek the people that are the most vulnerable and kind of social and economic chains. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, um, it's a, it's a really interesting, it's a very quick scene that's introduced for right near the end. Um, and it isn't, like, the, the film is fine with just, what I kind of like about it is, like, it never feels the need to explain its choices. It trusts the audience enough to kind of join the dots, as it were, as to exactly what Paul is doing. Because Paul is not, uh, he it, just a, an awful character. <laughs> just an awful, just awful. Uh, <laughs> like, and it's, Again, it's not this idea of like, oh, it's going to be something that's punished. It's like, it's it's far deeper than just, you know, it's very telling that the, even the buildings are, are decaying, right? Everything's falling down. Mm -hmm. So like, it's far deeper than just these kind of interpersonal dynamics. Yeah. And like, so there's a scene, right? Where like, um, so there's another character named Greg and Greg is like the cool, maybe older guy in the neighborhood. At least that's how he reads. Um, it's clear that the ladies like Greg from several scenes that we get of him. Um, and after their first encounter with the monster at the beach, right, when all of the friends finally realize, like, no, no, this is a real problem we're dealing with, uh, Greg and Jay have sex. So Greg can kind of take the monster and buy time while Jay is healing from a car crash. Um, and there's this there's this absolutely unnerving scene where, like, Greg is holding Jay's hand and they're they're just, like, chatting bedside. You know, it's never intimated that they have, like, an emotional relationship. Like, it's suggested that this is, like, a strategic decision the friend group has made. And, like, Paul has, like, this, like... Yeah, like, real Kubrick stare. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, like, it's, like, oh, my God. Like, that is such an unnerving shot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Greg doesn't really seem to believe it's a thing. Like the entity, he's like, yeah, something weird happened, but it's fine. Um, until Jay ends up seeing the entity as Greg wander into Greg's house. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's the kind of very weird Oedipal moment where it's the entity that is Greg's kind of half naked mother opens mm -hmm. his bedroom door and ends up having sex with his corpse. Like, like, which, which again, deeply weird Oedipal moment and shows that, like, for all of his, like, cool and his, like, ability with the ladies, there's, there's something that's, like, 
he was not really, he seemed older, but he wasn't really that older at all, right? Not in the terms of being like qualitatively different from them. Yeah. And I mean, like, that's like, this, this is like Dream Logic 101. You know, like you, you have, you have an Oedipal nightmare. Like, like that, that fits, that fits so well in, into the framework of this movie, right? Like so much of this movie has to be psychosexual because that is the way of dreams. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And he's the one who's like, oh no, I'm past all that. You know, he's the one who presents himself as the kind of like the grown up one, but no, he's not. He's just, he's just like them. He's just like, he's just like the rest of them dealing with the same, uh, kind of like the same kind of like psychodrama, the same kind of existential horror at like what you might turn into. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's like his his character is is one of the most interesting for kind of exploring the entity and it follows and how it's literally and kind of metaphysically pursuing the characters, right? How it is the embodiment of just pure consequence. Yes. You know, like be, beyond beyond even death. It's like what you said earlier, like what's what's worse than changing into something completely different and unrecognizable from where you were years ago? It's being the same thing, just older. Yeah, you you you'll always be you, and you know that can be, that can either be a kind of like a a reassuring thing or like, God, what an awful idea! What an awful idea! If all of the stuff you've been through up to now is never going to go away, and you're just going to kind of crumble into it, like that's and that's that's the horror. Yes, and and that's what I, I think that's what the entity so successfully depicts, right? Because it's not. It's not just appearing as old people or older people, right? It's it's often appearing as young people and people who are roughly the age of... It, it shows up as one of Jay's friends for a brief moment. And, like, but they all look run down. They all look tired and haggard and messed up and half-dressed. None of them appear ready. They're not put together. You know, like, at one point, one of the, the forms that the entity take, like, urinates itself, right? Like, they're all tired and worn down and broken. And I think that's that's the visage here. What if you could never grow out of what you were? What if what if all that's left is just to run down what you've got left? And that that is so much more gripping and terrifying than like what if the monster was an illness that the way we structured society makes it incredibly stigmatic and difficult to handle yeah um and there's there's one thing i wanted to add to this which is like a kind of there are a couple of tiny moments about jay specifically that i think are really interesting um and it's this idea of like what if what if there was no great transformation what if becoming an adult just meant dealing with the same shit you've been dealing with now in fact, dealing with more of it. Um, there's a moment when um, Jay's, they're sitting on the grass, right? And she's pulling uh, blades of grass out of the, out of the, uh, out of the earth. And she lays them in parallel lines uh, across her leg. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's another, there's another kind of little moment the film shows a couple of times, which I think is well worth picking up on, which is there's the same plate of food uh, in her bedroom that's, mm -hmm. that's never touched but there is medication that's touched but no food mm -hmm. and so like it's never spelled out and I don't think there's any need to spell it out but like there are, there are the suggestions here of like kind of deeper traumas which are um, again obviously kind of uh, you could treat them in very kind of superficial ways but they are 
um, responses to a certain kind of life. Um, and so the thing that kind of started to sort of draw those threads together for me is right at the end, um, Jay's sister asks, what did you see? What does it look like? Um, mm-hmm. And Jay says, I don't want to tell you. Um, and what it looks like is it looks like a older guy with a beard who is also the same older guy with a beard who appears in pictures that you see on the walls of their house. Yeah. So like, what what do you think about that? Do you, what do you think about these kind of like just almost incidental details that the film drops in? So I think, I think um, Greg and Jay are in a lot of ways, mirror characters, mm. you know, like they read as being like very quote unquote mature for their age, right? They're dry. They're the ones that we see driving a lot, which is a signifier, especially in the United States of coming of age and adulthood. And especially in American cinema, Right. The teen driving a car is is like an iconic image for both teen exploitation, which this movie dips a toe in at certain points, especially the boat scene, as well as like, you know, coming of age movies. Right. A child driving a car like even even Ghostbusters Afterlife plays into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think what I find to be interesting is that Jay's missing a father and Greg is, you know, his has a, a much different problem with his mother Um and and so I think you can you can read that, you know, Polaroid as being like, oh, that's the that's the deceased father, that's the missing father figure. You could also read it as as the abusive father that's now out of the picture. I, I think there's a lot of ways that you can read it, and I don't think any of them are mutually exclusive, right? I think they all can exist not only independently, but also simultaneously. Yeah, exactly. And it's like again, it's that dream logic. Um it's this uh this idea of like um, trying to solve the film by reducing it down to like a simple one-to-one metaphor, it elides a lot of this depth to it. And again, the film never never spells anything out, never never makes anything explicit, but doesn't need to, uh, because just those little details are enough to kind of like trigger associations in the mind of the viewer. And you go, uh, like. You, you might become something else when you grow up, but really you're going to become something else and that what you become is in some ways determined by the things that have happened to you up to now in some way. But at the same time, you don't necessarily get to predict who you might be when you grow up. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I just, think, I just think that there are some very interesting details about, about Jay. And, and I, I couldn't agree more, right? And like, I think her... She's like wearing a puka shell necklace at some point, <laughs> yeah. and like, yes. yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, like, like doing doing all these things that are like really anachronistic. Her style of dress, like, it, it evokes such a fluidic period of time, and like, her, her, like, you know, the, the constant, like, you know, like, empty stare that she's got, the kind of trauma that that she she is just visually must be processing even beyond the it follows thing, yeah, because she's just kind of always like this. Yeah, I I think like it works so well with with the rest of the movie because materially this movie is timeless, but so is kind of the pain that it's exploring. It's it's so unspecific that you know like in a hundred years when we look back on this kind of text, we'll be able to to identify with the suffering that's going on here because the shape of suffering will will likely still be reachable. This is this is why I think the fi- one of the very final moments in the film is when uh, in the kind of big fight with the entity Yara is uh, shot in the leg, 
And so there's a scene when they're in the hospital whilst uh, they're recovering and they read uh, something from uh, their little uh, seashell e-reader. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's what they're reading is they're reading Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot. Uh, and I think the quote that they decide to use is super interesting and kind of fleshes out really a lot of what the film is about. And the most terrible agony may not be in the wounds themselves, but in knowing for certain that within a, within an hour, then within 10 minutes, then within half a minute, now, at this very instant, your soul will leave your body and you will no longer be a per- person. And that, this is certain. The worst thing, it is certain. Of course, it's very, it's very heavily based on um, Dostoevsky's own almost execution. Um, mm-hmm. And what does it mean to co- be confronted with your own death? But it's like, what does it mean to be confronted with your own finitude, right? To know. It's not, it's not the fact that it would hurt, right? It's to know that at a certain point, what you are is going to be gone. Like the, yeah. the, the, the being, the, 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 you know, the soul that you are, as it were, is going to be gone. And I think that's that's what makes the makes the whole thing so impactful, rather than this kind of tired metaphor about STDs. And I think there's like there's there's such a good like almost cosmic horror element to what's going on. Yeah, here. precisely. Yes. In in a lot of the movies that are playing in the background, they're like fifties sci fi films. Mm-hmm. And and th- those those films are largely about the, the I mean like I don't know I shouldn't reduce them so 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 totally but but a central theme to a lot of that cinema is how rapidly technology changed in the intervening twenty five years mm-hmm. yeah. up to the point of those we, we we go from a world where like electricity is a novelty and industry is just kicking up to a world where we're knocking on the door of outer space and now we have weapons that can level entire cities with no effort yeah. And, and a lot changes very rapidly. We can never go back to being the thing we used to be anymore. And this movie is much more the microcosm of that. Yeah, like, and like, isn't that isn't like isn't the human condition a kind of cosmic horror, a kind of cosmic anxiety? Like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I just can't help but feel like this is a deeply exist- existentialist horror movie. If you're an existentialist, if you're interested in existentialism, you'll love this movie. <laughs> But I think one of the things that's really telling, too, is that, like, the It Follows monster has incredibly strict rules mm-hmm. as far as monsters go, right? Like, like we can try and make rules for Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger and Michael Meyer and, like, the the entity in It Follows is is very much – it doesn't do much slashing, but it is a slasher in, in spirit. Yeah. And, like – the rules that we have for this thing are it has to walk, it will follow you eventually, and it can shapeshift somehow. Mm-hmm. It, it, is, it is a highly containable and defeatable problem, even though it's super-powered and ostensibly cannot be killed. If all it, if all it can ever do is walk towards you, there, there are ways that we can contain this thing and, and create a life that's not like... I mean, like, give, give it to somebody who's doing hashtag van life and we should be fine. <laughs> You know, like, let them die of natural causes and then, you know, we'll just keep passing it on to the next van life yeah. Instagram account. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and like, but, but I think, like, all joking aside, like, this points to, like, kind of structural horrors in this film. You know, the, the visual landscape of this film is very much, like, it's depicting, like, 
there's almost like an Instagram filter feel when we're like with our youthful cast and crew. Mm. They're all very aesthetic. They're all very stylized. And that's to reflect the kind of anachronistic nature of dreams. But the world that we're in is 2014's Detroit. And, and, and all of the kind of like flight of capital and, and quote unquote urban decay that, that's, that's going on there, right? And I think that 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 plays in so well because like when I was watching this movie, I'm like, this thing is like, you could manage the it follows monster with a sufficient and very low cost set of social programs. Yes. <laughs> it does not, it would not take much effort to, to solve the it follows monster with, with a little bit of care. And, and like to, to mirror that with like a city that was gutted when the auto industries left and in a gutting that is entirely artificial, a gutting that could have entirely been fixed with enough care. Same with like Flint, Michigan in the water, like a thing that could be fixed with with a sufficient amount of care that ultimately represents a trivial cost in the grand scheme of things. Yet, nevertheless, these kids are still pursued by the entity. Nevertheless, Detroit is still half collapsed. Nevertheless, water is still undrinkable in so many places in America. You know, like the entity is still stalking us out of a, out of a lack of political and social solutions. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.